I'd like to read Jonah 1, 1 through 17 to you. Again, we're coming to a narrative text, so I, I think sometimes it's maybe more effective to hear God's word in this form read to you. I also want you to notice as I read that though I will read all the way through chapter 17, the first part of Jonah stops at verse 16. It's one of those strange divisions in the Scriptures. You know that the Scripture wasn't inspired with verse divisions. And so really, verse 17 goes with chapter 2. So that's how we'll preach it, though you may see this here this morning in chapter 1. Jonah 1, 1-17. through 17. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise. Go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea. And there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. And the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God. And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had laid down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will, will give, us, give thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What's your occupation, and where where do you come from, and what is your country, and, and of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. And he said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea, then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rowed hard to get back to dry land, but they could not. For the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea. 
and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly. And they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Let's pray together. Our Father, God of sea and land and heaven and earth and all creation, to you it is that we come this morning. And we come to you like Jonah in so many ways. So, Father, reveal your glory to us as you did to Jonah. You descended in the cloud and stood with Moses and proclaimed your name to him. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, the children's children, the third and fourth generation. May we see you as you are, even in this narrative of Jonah. And may we, like Moses, and as Jonah should have on this very day, bow down our heads toward you and worship. We thank you that in Christ we have found favor in your sight. So please come among us, God, by your Spirit. We are stiff-necked. We have iniquity and sin. And through Christ we ask for your pardon. And that we would be your inheritance. That you would do with us a great thing in the earth. That you would use us as your servants to speak your word and bring the nations to salvation. For your eternal glory we pray. Use, Father, graciously and kindly use this book in our hearts over the next weeks to do your saving work, not just in us, but in the world, in this community we pray. For your glory and the glory of Christ. In his name, amen. Thank you. Please be seated. Well, the book of Jonah, like Ruth, is one of the most well-known books of the Old Testament. Even uh, someone who attended church sporadically as a child and maybe even no longer attends church today, you could probably ask them, have you ever heard the story of Jonah? And they would say yes, and they would tell you some of those things that they remember from that story. It's probably because some of the events found in the plot of Jonah leave you absolutely speechless. Things like running from God. Right? That's absurd. Running from God. That's, that's, a, that's a part of the story that just wedges itself in our memory. Or a level 10 hurricane storm on the sea. Terrifying. Absolutely terrifying. Or a big fish that many often call a whale, but text says it's a big fish, so I don't know what kind it was. 
Maybe in your imagination you see a great big pike or something like that coming up to swallow Jonah. And Jonah being swallowed and somehow being in the belly of this fish and then being regurgitated, whatever the right word is, God calling Jonah back out of the fish. A massive city filled with wickedness that experience an amazing awakening. That's exciting in this book. You remember a pouting prophet, right? And hot winds and shady plants and nasty worms. and It's such a, it's such a variety of things that go on in this particular book. Some readers actually refuse to take some of these events as literal because of their supernatural nature. I'm sure you've, you've heard of that as well. You've read different things about Jonah. But brothers and sisters, I want to declare to you today that we must take everything in this book as literal. Do you know why? I think the most powerful reason that I can find in Scripture is because Jesus said we must take it literally. In fact, we'll get more to this in the weeks ahead. But Jesus referred to the prophet Jonah, didn't he? In Matthew chapter 12, 38 to 41, some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered him, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except what? The sign of the prophet Jonah. What was that sign? For just as Jonah was in, was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater then Jonah is here. What a magnificent text to look back on the story of Jonah. Jonah, literal, literal person, literal prophet. Great fish, literal. Son of man, literal. Life, death, burial, resurrection of Jesus, literal. And the comparison between the two is made, literally. Right? Is that amazing how Jesus puts those connections for us in place? Nineveh, a literal city. The repentance, literal. Preaching, literal. The day of judgment, literal. Oh, wow. We have before us an amazing account of God's saving work. Also, I want you to know that we will not only take this account as literal, but also autobiographical. Now, that's something to think about for a moment. This prophecy, Jonah, four chapters, is autobiographical. It presents itself as being written by Jonah himself because there are details that are written into this story that most naturally indicate a first-hand, personal, experiential knowledge of those events, even though Jonah wrote about himself in third person. And that's not a problem because many of the prophets did write in third person. And so there's something I want us to consider, keep in mind along the way, as you think about this being autobiographical, is that Jonah must have written this after the Lord restored him. Think about that. Remember that. He writes, and he's not the hero of his story. He tells you the 
depths of his rebellion and his disobedience as a servant of Yahweh, as a child of God. He, he airs his dirty laundry in front of you. And the story does not end with his repentance. Did you notice that too? Well, we will. It doesn't end with his repentance. It ends with God speaking, probing questions to Jonah, trying to, well, trying, using his word to draw him to repentance. And at some point later, Jonah writes this. It's like, you know, you can compare it to Solomon. Solomon, who was inspired to write the Proverbs as a young king. And he was given, right, the, 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 the um, invitation from God, what do you want me to give to you? And of all the things, Solomon says, I want wisdom. And so God gives him wisdom. And the book of Proverbs is the result of that divine gift of wisdom. Well, then we know something of Solomon's life. How he strayed as a servant of Yahweh. And lived his life apart from that wisdom in so many ways. But then, as Solomon comes to the end of his life, what does he write? Ecclesiastes. And says, I was there. I've been there. I've done it. I wandered from God's wisdom, but God has restored me. And the overflow of that restoration is Ecclesiastes. And I don't know the time length, right? And, and neither do you. We, we can't really know that. But I think the same thing is true of Jonah. And so what a precious gift this is to see the depths of rebellion of the remaining depravity, if you will, in Jonah's life and how God restores him and saves him from his sin. This is a magnificent, spirit-inspired work that powerfully and majestically puts on display Yahweh, our God, as a Savior. That's, that is the message of Jonah. And Jonah points to the attributes of our great and good and glorious God as that Savior. In fact, I would argue that the central verse of Jonah is the one we saw on the slideshows this morning, Jonah 2.9. It's also the memory verse if you'd like to read it or like to memorize it over these next weeks in the bulletin. That's our work for, uh, work for memorization. And it's on the church sign. Mr. Tom, put it on the church sign for us. What is it? Jonah 2.9b, the very end. Salvation belongs to the Lord. That is the central theme of the book of Jonah. And that's, that declaration is, is wonderfully and gloriously dis, dis, uh, displayed for us and supported for us even further in Jonah chapter 4. Jonah chapter 4, verse 2, the second half of the verse says, and it's Jonah's own confession to God. He says, I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. Relenting from the punishment that he had planned to give to Nineveh. That message is unfolded and expanded throughout the four chapters of Jonah through the sovereign, mighty acts of God to save whom he has purposed to save. 
That's the point of this book. We're going to see firsthand that if God wants to save someone, He will save them. If God wants to save someone, He will save that person and nothing can stop Him. That's the message of Jonah. If God will save someone, He has purpose to do so, He will do it. In this particular narrative, God has purpose to save Nineveh from their wickedness, Jonah from his disobedience, and the sailors from their idolatry. And no matter what opposition puny human creatures might try to throw against God, God gloriously accomplishes all of His sovereign saving purposes by every means that He chooses to use. Even though Jonah disobeys. That's no excuse for Jonah's disobedience, but God even, like we learned in Ruth, orchestrated Jonah's disobedience to unfold His plan and purpose to bring those sailors, those mariners, to true salvation. And we'll look at that. What does God do? What, just what does Yahweh do to save people? Just what does He do to put on display the truth that salvation belongs to Him? You could literally go through the book of Jonah, and that's kind of the way we're going to unfold it, and look at all the things God does. I'm going to read them off to you in a hurry, and then we'll just, we'll just walk through them over the next few weeks. Chapter 1, Yahweh speaks. Chapter 1, Yahweh hurls a storm. Chapter 1, Yahweh increased the intensity of that storm. Chapter 1, Yahweh appointed a fish, a great fish. Chapter 2, Yahweh heard Jonah's cry. Yahweh spoke to the fish. Chapter 3, Yahweh speaks again. Yahweh saw repentance. Yahweh relented His disaster. Chapter 4, again, Yahweh speaks. Yahweh appointed a, a plant. Yahweh appointed a worm. Yahweh appointed a scorching wind and the sun to beat down. And again at the end, Yahweh speaks. That's, that's what God does to save people from their sins. Just watch Him. Watch Him through this story. And it's so wonderful that the Lord orchestrated this morning in His sovereignty all of the elements of our service, the songs, the how did we land on Psalm 8 that speaks of God's power over creation and so on. The emphasis of, of even the songs and the sections of Scripture on the power of God in creation. It's exactly where we needed to be this morning. God saves. God is sovereign. God is full of steadfast love. Main idea? Salvation belongs to the Lord. And Lord willing, by His kindness, we will see many other truths and implications that come out from this chapter, from this book as a result of God's great, sovereign, saving, loving power. Again, this morning as we come to chapter 1 together, let's ask ourselves the question, since, since Yahweh saves, since salvation belongs to Yahweh the Lord, indeed, what does He do to save those He has purpose to save? And so in your outline this morning, there are two points, and there will be some sub-points that I will give you along the way. Number one, our saving God sends His Word. 
our saving God sends His Word. This is verses 1-3. through Now the Word of the Lord came to Jonah the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. This is how so many of the prophets begin and continue. The Word of the Lord comes. I don't want to miss that. The Lord sends His Word. That's letter A. The Lord sends His Word. Our saving God speaks. We should never get over this fact that God speaks. What do we deserve from God in our sinfulness and our rebellion? We deserve absolute silence. That's what we deserve. And the resulting eternal separation. But rather than leave us in that silence, Yahweh speaks to us. He speaks to us who have turned against Him and sinned against Him. He breaks the silence of sin. He breaks the silence of spiritual death and the silence of spiritual blindness and ignorance. And He speaks truth and light and life and salvation. That is a unique and wonderful characteristic about our God is that He is a speaking God. He speaks to us through His creation. I think of Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies above proclaim His handiwork. In fact, there is no language where the voice of creation is not heard, Psalm 19 tells. But God has given us something even far more precious than the voice of creation, the voice of the Son that indicates His greatness and His glory. He has given to us His Word. The law of the Lord is perfect. Psalm 19 continues, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord are true, righteous altogether, and so on. There's so many wonderful statements about the, the Word of God. And of course, that psalm ends with a glorious response from David that he would be redeemed, that he would be revealed in his sin before the Lord, and the Lord, his rock and his redeemer, would purify and cleanse him and keep him from sin. We see this sort of pattern in John chapter 1 as well. Our God is a God who speaks and, and, and thus it is appropriate that the Son of God would be called the Word, the One who created all things, then also took on flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory. Glory is the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. And as he lived and died here with us, didn't he speak to us? He spoke the words that his father gave to him, and he did the works that his father commanded him to do. We have a speaking God, and that's how God saves people. That's the first step. Why do we, as, as missionaries, as it were, send ourselves, one another, the body of Christ, across the world to do what first? What's the front line of missions? To translate the Scriptures into the language of the people. Why? Because God speaks. And that's how He brings salvation. Hebrews 4.12, The Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Is the Word of God truly that powerful? Absolutely, James 1.18, of His own will, He brought us forth into spiritual life by what? The Word of truth. That we should be a kind of first fruits of His creatures. Peter echoes the same words in 1 Peter 1.23, since you have been born again, 
not of perishable seed, but of imperishable. What is that imperishable seed, Peter? Through the living and abiding what? Word of God. This is the first movement of God to save people, is to send them His Word. Isaiah 55, 10 and 11, For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I send it. No wonder David cried out in Psalm 138, 1 and 2, I give thanks to you, O God, with my whole heart. Before the gods I sing your praise. I bow down toward your holy temple and give thanks to your name for your steadfast love and your faithfulness. For you have exalted above all things your name and your word. That is the power of the saving God. He speaks and He saves. So not only do we see here that the Lord sends His Word, but then let her be, the Lord sends His Holy Word by His servant. What a privilege Jonah was given. He sends His Word by His servant. He says to Jonah, the Word came to Jonah. The most, most often the Lord sends His Word through a servant that He has chosen to carry His Word. This time, Jonah was that servant. Who was Jonah? We don't know too much about Jonah, but let's see what we can find out a little bit. I'll give you some more introductory material as we go throughout this first chapter. Who was Jonah? Well, here it says he is the son of Amittai. And that's basically all we have from the book of Jonah. But that's not all we have in the Bible about Jonah. If you, if you were to look at 2 Kings 14, we see there a bit more information about Jonah. You're welcome to turn there if you'd like. I have it written here to read for you. 2 Kings 14, 23-27. Listen carefully. It says, In the fifteenth year of Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, began to reign in Samaria. And he reigned 41 years. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nabat, which he made, which, which he made Israel to sin. He restored the border of Israel from Lebohomath as far as the Sea of Arabah, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke by his servant Jonah the son of Amittai, the prophet, who was from Gath-Hefer. For the Lord saw that the affliction of Israel was very bitter, for there was nothing left, bond or free, and there was none to help Israel. But the Lord had not said that He would blot out the name of Israel from under heaven, so He saved them by the hand of Jeroboam, the son of Joash. Now what can we learn from these few verses in 2 Kings 14? One thing is, is that Jonah prophesied in Israel. That is the northern ten tribes of Israel. This is a time post the divided kingdom. And so Amaziah was king in Judah, reigning in Jerusalem, and Jeroboam II, who is referred to in that passage, was the king in Israel, and he reigned in Samaria. 
Now, the kingdom of Israel had, exper- had expanded geographically. You, you heard that read also in the text. Somehow, God prophesied to, to Jonah to speak to Jeroboam, and God granted that particular time in the kingdom of Israel an expanded border. So there may have been, during those days, some material prosperity. But clearly, the kingdom of Israel had been led by this king, Jeroboam, into great spiritual desolation. It says there that he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So into this climate of spiritual darkness, the Lord sent his word through Jonah. God was still at work. That's the wonderful thing about it. He didn't forsake his covenant to Israel. There's allusion to that at the end of that section we read. God is still at work. In fact, earlier in the book of 2 Kings, we read of the power of God and his work through prophets like Elijah and Elisha and a group of men who those men had had trained and influenced and brought up in the ways of God called the sons of the prophets. And so Jonah may have been, may have been one of the sons of the prophets, but if not, he most likely was at least influenced by the ministry of these godly men. He, over his lifetime, overlapped theirs. Elijah, Elisha, sons of the prophets, Jonah. There's no way to verify this, but there is an old Jewish legend that states that Jonah was actually the son of the widow of Zarephath, whom Elijah brought to life by the power of God and declared that would serve the Lord. I don't know if that's true. We can't verify that, but it's interesting to think about that being a possibility. It's like 1 Kings chapter 17, 7 through 14, or 7 through 24. So here's what we do know. The Lord has chosen to send his word by his servant Jonah whom he has specially prepared for that time. Jonah was Yahweh's prepared servant. Jonah was influenced by the men of Yahweh in that age. Jonah had been blessed by fellowship with Yahweh, certainly. And Jonah had been, as the prophets often use this word, Jonah had been burdened by the word of the Lord. Jonah was the chosen instrument for this particular moment in the Lord's plan of redemption. And that is often how God works. God sends his message of salvation through a particularly chosen servant. Let us see this morning as we move on in this text. The Lord sends his word by his servant to whom? To a sinful city. To a sinful city. Nineveh. What kind of city was Nineveh? Well, we have something here. In chapter 1, verse 2 of Jonah, arise, go to Nineveh. There's a few descriptions here. We see it's a great city. And then we see in the last half of verse 2, it's an evil city. History tells us something about Nineveh. James Boyce in his commentary writes this, the city was so large that it took three days to cross it and that it had 120,000 infants or small children. We see that in Jonah 4, verse 11. We also know that it had walls 100 feet high and so broad that three chariots could run abreast around them. And within the walls were gardens and even fields for cattle. Well, that's a great city. 
I've never seen a city like that, have you? Pretty impressive. But there is certainly historic record of such cities in human history. It was a great city. Nahum also preached God's word to Nineveh. Remember that? You look at the prophet Nahum and you see him making his message directed about the city of Nineveh. Listen to what Nahum says about the city of Nineveh in Nahum 3, 1 through 5. Woe to the bloody city, all full of lies and plunder, no end to the prey, the crack of the whip and rumble of the wheel, galloping horse and bounding chariot, horsemen charging, flashing sword and glittering spear, hosts of slain, heaps of corpses, dead bodies without end. They stumble over the bodies, and all for the countless whorings of the prostitute, graceful and of deadly charms, who betrays nations with her whorings and peoples with her charms. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts, and will lift up your skirts over your face, and I will make nations look at your nakedness and kingdoms at your shame. Wow. What a depiction of a sinful city. This was indeed a great city, but a wicked city. Now, here's what's amazing about it. What becomes more clear throughout this narrative of Jonah is that God desired to rescue them from their wickedness in spite of everything. And from His own just wrath, He desired to rescue them from their sin. This is why we look at this book, one of the reasons, and we say, what a Savior who would not be done with such a city. And just like Sodom and Gomorrah, for example, and God is right to do that. His judgments are just and true, right? He never wavers in His holiness. And yet, He delights in steadfast love. He delights to send his servants to what the world would call the worst of sin cities and bring salvation. Some of my favorite verses in all of Scripture, Micah 7, 18 and 19. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity, passing over transgression, transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because He delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. What's amazing is that this generation of Nineveh experienced that. What would that have been like to see and observe? Salvation belongs to the Lord. He saves whom He will. It doesn't matter the depth of their depravity. It is not too sinful for him to save. Letter D. The Lord sends his word by his servant to a sinful city with a serious statement. The very specific thing God wants to say to Nineveh. God knows what sinners need to hear in order to turn them to himself and enjoy his true salvation. Look what it says here. 
we simply have here in verse 2 that God commands Jonah to call out against it. In other words, point out their sin and tell them that wrath is coming. That was the message. That becomes more clear later on in the text. In fact, Jonah 3 verse 4, we see there, Jonah began to go into the city going a day's journey. So he must have been, you know, almost to the middle of the city. And he called out, yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. That's what God wanted to tell Nineveh. He said, well, that's, that doesn't sound like a message of salvation. Ah, but wait. Think about this, dear ones. Think about this. In order for a sinner to turn to God and enjoy his true salvation, they need to hear about their sin. Remember we talked about this a couple weeks ago. Salvation that God offers makes no sense apart from the wrath of God. The wrath of God makes no sense apart from sin. Sin makes no sense apart from a holy law. And a holy law makes no sense apart from the declaration of the truth that God is a holy creator king. So they needed to hear about their sin. They needed to hear about God's wrath. They needed to hear about the sickness so they would willingly receive the cure of the gospel. That's how God works. That's the specific statements that God sends. I think a wonderful illustration of this, and you've probably heard this if you've, if you've listened to some of the, the clips of witnessing that Ray Comfort has put on the internet. He often asks those in his interviews, if a doctor had a patient who was deathly sick, but the patient didn't know it, and that patient appeared at that moment and thought himself to be very, very healthy. He looked healthy, he was strong, he felt good. But in reality, he only had two weeks to live. What should the doctor do? Should the doctor just give him the cure or show him the x-rays? And honestly, most of the time, people just say, well, give him the cure. And he's like, no. Why would he take the cure if he does not see the need to take the cure? Show him the x-rays, and he'll be like, give me the cure, please. I'm ready to receive it. See, that's, that's how our saving God speaks. The first thing is he sends out his word, and he says, call out against it. Show them their sin. Show them the coming wrath. And then offer them grace. Our saving God sends His Word by His chosen servant with just the statement of truth that the sinner needs to hear so that he may be saved. Behold, the salvation of Yahweh. This is, this is His work. It belongs to Him. Letter E this morning. Jonah's reaction. Verse 3. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish. What? From the presence of the Lord? He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish, so he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. Jonah, what are you doing? He went Great way and preach to Nineveh, right? No. He didn't. 
He ran in the opposite direction. Jonah decided knowingly, willfully, to directly disobey Yahweh's command to him. Can a believer in Yahweh do this? Here it is. Hopefully it doesn't happen every day. But here it is. Can a believer, can a servant of Yahweh do this? Can a prophet of Yahweh do this? Here it is. Sadly, yes. Jonah, the servant of Yahweh, chose to directly disobey God's command. Jonah got up, went into the exact opposite direction geographically. Tarshish. Here it is. It's Tarshish is way over here across the Mediterranean Sea, right? In Spain. We're not going to we're not talking about Spain here. We're talking about Israel. We're talking about Nineveh. And 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 Jonah's going to Spain. Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. In fact, the text reveals that Jonah's disobedience to Yahweh's command was a very, very, very intense reaction in Jonah's soul. You've got to see this for, for, for all it's worth here. We can. It says that multiple times throughout this text, Jonah rose to flee from Tarshish, from the presence of the Lord. It says at the beginning of verse 3, it says it at the end of verse 3, it says it in verse 10, from the presence of the Lord, from the presence of the Lord, from the presence of the Lord. Can you flee from the presence of the Lord? No. Psalm 139, 7-12, Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell on the uttermost part of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. Jonah needed to memorize verse 9. Even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night. Even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as the day for darkness is as light with you. So, didn't Jonah know about God's omnipresence? Of course he did. And in fact, he probably knew Psalm 139 as well, since it was written before him. So then what was Jonah trying to do? What was he, what was he after? Rebellion against God. This is the first thing I want you to think about. Rebellion against God blinds you to truth and cripples you from being able to see clearly enough to apply God's truth to your own situation. So you just push out truth when you want to sin. Don't we? That's Jonah. But Jonah wasn't really thinking about running from the presence of God as if he could escape God's presence. That's not what this is about. In fact, the word that is described here is that Jonah was running from God's face. God's face. Everything through which he had known and loved and experienced God. That's the idea. To know God and to love Him is to behold His face. He was running from God's commandments. He was running from prayer to God. He was running from enjoyment of fellowship with God. He was running from God's people. He was running from the place of worship. 
He was running from the Word of God that revealed the will of God and the face of God to him. That's what he's running from. Do you see the difference? He's not trying to escape omnipresence. He's trying to escape that accountability and that, that all that he knows about God in order to go his own way. Jonah was rebelliously and intentionally trying to shut it all out so that he could run headlong away from God's way and into his own way. That is what we do. We are so much like Jonah. We can't. We can't per- pursue our way with this headstrong, hard mindset and at the same time really pursue God. We have to shut all that out. Right? That's, that's Jonah. That's what he's doing. You wouldn't think that one of Yahweh's children could do this, but there went Jonah. That's both comforting in a sense and convicting, isn't it? And there we have gone as well. Please notice the narrative language of this text that teaches us so much. Something I want you to see. Let's, let's, let me go back to that particular slide. What you see here in verse 3, is that after we see Jonah running, fleeing from the Lord's command and the presence of the Lord, he goes down, and he goes down, and later on in the text, he goes down and down again. There's four times, you can look at it in the narrative, four times where Jonah goes down. Whenever any child of God tries to run like Jonah did, which direction does he run? Down. That's it. What, what a picturesque lesson. It's always down. Down to Joppa, down to the ship, down to the sea, down, laying down in the belly of, of the fish even. Whenever a child of God tries to run away from the face of Yahweh because he doesn't want to do the will of Yahweh, it is always a direction of sinful decline, spiritual decline and degradation. In fact, this going down cost Jonah much, didn't it? I, don't, I wonder, the text doesn't say, but I wonder how much it actually cost to buy a ticket from Joppa Tarshish. And he never got there, did he? <laughs> was, that, was that all of Jonah's savings? I, I don't know. We don't know that, but it cost him a lot. And it cost him much spiritually. It certainly cost him physically beyond paying the fare. He almost lost his life, right? Spiritually, which we'll look at next week. Lord willing, it cost him much. We'll look at that in chapter 2. He also put those around him in great danger, as well as he caused them to feel the terrible effects of the chastening hand of Yahweh, his great and saving God. Now, you must understand here, and then, and then we'll move on to the second point here. We have to understand why Jonah decided to run from the face of the Lord. There's something very important in it that we need to learn. Why? Why do you think Jonah decided to run? What's at the heart of it for him? Was he intimidated by the greatness of Nineveh? It's a great city. No. No. Did he say, they'll never listen to me. They're so great. I don't think so. Was he terrified by the wickedness of Nineveh? Maybe he said, they will do to me as they have done to so many others. They're going to heap up my body in the pile. Remember how it said in Nahum? I don't think that was it either. Actually. Jonah's autobiography indicates that neither of those were the reasons. What was the reason? Here it is. Jonah knew God 
well. He knew that God would save this generation of the city of Nineveh. He knew it. He knew it in his heart of hearts. He knew God's heart to save. He did not want God to save them. You remember that? That's why he ran. He did not... He didn't love them. He hated those people. He may even, it may even be that he did not want to be ridiculed or, or considered a traitor by other, other Israelites who had that same mentality. I don't know about that, but it could be. Because he would have been an instrument of salvation to the Ninevite people whom many in Israel hated. Therefore, he refused to obey God's direct command. He refused to preach to Nineveh and ran in the other direction as hard as he could. Look what happened. We'll just get a little preview. Jonah 3.10. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them. And he did not do it. The chapter 4 continues. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry, and he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious and merciful, slow, a God gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me. Better for me to die than to live. Isn't that something? Before we point fingers at Jonah, we should really think about ourselves with this. Think for a moment about the depths of Jonah's response. Jonah did not share God's heart for the salvation of sinners. Jonah did not share God's heart for the salvation of the nations. It was communicated from the earliest days of God's covenant that his people were always going to be part of this plan to save the nations around them. The Abrahamic covenant, right? Genesis 12, 1 through 3. I will bless you, I will make your name great, and through you, I'll be a blessing to the nations. That was. Always the plan, right? Paul made it more clear, the mystery of the welcoming in of the Gentiles, right, into the church. He made that more clear in Ephesians and so on. But that was always there. It was demonstrated even from the earliest of God's saving acts that he intended to save the nations around Israel. Why did God bring Tamar and, and Rahab and Bathsheba and who else? Ruth into his family. God delights in salvation. So what was up with Jonah then? He was proud. He was condescending. He was bitter. He was proud. He, we're the privileged people of God. We are the ones who have the truth and we deserve it. And we've been doing good. And you know what I mean? Oh, how easy it is to have that air about us. We're condescending. We're superior than other people around us. Because of what we know and because of the privilege we've been given. Does it have anything to do with us at all? No. It's everything to do with who God is. This story demonstrates that. He was bitter. We're sinned against by these people. We do not love Nineveh. 
We do not want Nineveh to be saved. We don't want Nineveh to inherit God's blessings with us. We, we don't want Nineveh to be objects of God's steadfast love. Look at who they are. Look at what they've done. They don't deserve it. Wow. That's why Jonah ran from God's command. Jonah had turned from the timeless truth in Titus 3, 1-7, for example, that God's people of every age must embrace Paul talks about there our, our call as the people of God to be gentle and courteous and loving and bearers of good works with good news to the world around us. And he says, why? Why? Why should we be that way? Well, it's terrible to be that way because they're foolish and disobedient people and led astray. Well, he says, for we ourselves were once that way. We ourselves were once foolish and disobedient and led astray, slaves of various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His mercy, and so on, and made us inheritance and, and, and heirs of, of His glory. See, Jonah forgot all that. And so he was proud condescending, bitter, and therefore disobedient. Because Jonah did not share God's heart for the salvation of the nations. He rebelled, he disobeyed, he ran from the face of God. Now, what will God do? What's God going to do about it? God will do what he has purposed to do, right? In spite of us. God will save, God will save Jonah now from his rebellion so that he will have his servant go to Nineveh in order to save Nineveh from their wickedness. That's no problem for God. He will do all His purpose. So how does God accomplish that? Just watch. This is where the story gets even better. You ready? Number two. Here we go. This is amazing. Watch God work. Our saving God sends His storm. Now this part goes much faster. And so the story does go much faster as you read it. But Jonah rose to flee. Verse 3. Verse 4, but the Lord hurled the storm. Hurled. There's a lot of hurling going on. You can see it. It's repeated all throughout the text. You'll notice a lot of it in the rest of chapter. Verse 4, verse 5, verse 12, verse 15. There was probably some unmentioned hurling because of the movement of the ship on the waves. Look at what happens as a result of Yahweh's hurling this wind and intensifying it along the way. In fact, it says that, doesn't it? Verse 11, verse 13, these guys weren't responding yet. And so what does Yahweh do? He picks up the waves, makes it rougher until finally they give over. Wow. Look at what happens. First, and this goes quick. Jonah's running is stopped. His path of running is the sea. And God hurled a great wind on the sea. And there was this mighty tempest on the sea that the ship threatened to break up. So Jonah's running is stopped. He can't get anywhere now. Jonah's plan. God does all this stuff. Jonah's plan is all but destroyed. What happened to the ship? The ship threatened to break up. I love the way the Legacy Standard Bibles puts it. It says the ship gave thought to breaking up. It's like the ship has a mind of its own now. 
It's like, I'm about to lose it, guys. Hold on. You know, this ship is about to come apart. Jonah's assistance. I'm calling the sailors or mariners in the ESV assistance of Jonah because he kind of harnessed them to run, didn't he? he? He used them to try to get away from the presence of God. Jonah's assistants are terrified. The mariners were afraid, so afraid that they're crying out each to his God. These guys are not believers in Yahweh. They all have probably their own different gods. They're sailors maybe from all around the, the Mediterranean Sea. I'm certain that they have heard of Yahweh because the news of Yahweh in so many ways had just cascaded across the area. But these guys are terrified. Jonah's assistants are helpless. God makes them helpless. They hurl the cargo that was in the ship in the sea. These, these guys are experienced mariners. They know what to do in a storm. They've been through many, but this one's different. They try to lighten it. Didn't do any good. Didn't do any good. Jonah's escape is futile. I want you to see this. This is really something to me. Jonah, again, had gone down into the inner part of the ship and lain down and was fast asleep. That is what almost you would expect. Jonah's like, I want to shut all of this out. I don't want to think about anything. I just want to sleep. He's escaping. He's running from the responsibility that God has called him to. And it's interesting how he comes out of his sleep here. In verse 6, the captain came and said, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give, us, give a thought to us, whoever your God is, right? That, that we may not perish. Now, it's interesting here. You've got to catch this. Call out. When was the last time you heard that? God, in verse 2, said to Jonah, call out to Nineveh. It would be a really surreal experience. Jonah's fast asleep, and all of a sudden he's awakened by the same words that God told him. But it's from the captain. Like, wait, whoa, whoa, oh, oh, good. It's not God, you know? But it was, in a sense. Get up. Come awake. What are you doing? You can't run from God. Jonah's cover is blown. Verse 7, let's cast lots. Yes, God reveals it in the Old Testament. You see this many times. God has revealed his will through lots and such kinds of things that we may know whose account evil has come upon us. And so they cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. His sin is exposed. His running is stopped. His plan is all but destroyed. His assistants are terrified. His assistants are helpless. His escape is futile. His cover is blown. His sin is exposed. Jonah's assistants are terrified and helpless again. Jonah told them what had happened. They, they said, on whose account has this evil come upon us? They go through these questions. I mean, could you imagine this scene? The, the, the storm hasn't let up at all. And they're all kind of gathered around him. I don't even know how they cast lots with all the movement in the, in, the, in the ship. But they're pelting him with questions because they're terrified. We've got to figure out how to get out of this. Everything that they tried was futile. What are we going to do? You know, it's interesting that 
Jonah did tell them much of the truth here. I am a Hebrew. I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, and wow, who made the sea and the dry land. But what doesn't Jonah tell them? I'm a prophet. That would kind of be embarrassing, wouldn't it? I'm running from God and I'm a prophet. He doesn't tell them that part. His assistants are terrified and helpless. What shall we do? The men knew he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord. What shall we do to you? What shall we do for you? What, what should we do about this? That the sea may be quieted down for us. Again, because there was more intensity coming, more and more tempestuous. And he said, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will be quiet down for you, for I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Jonah here clearly understood exactly what was going on. He wasn't, there was no confusion here for Jonah. He, the ship, these mariners were all experiencing the dangerous and frightening chastening of God to sovereignly and lovingly bring Jonah back into the obedience of his word so that God could sovereignly and lovingly save Nineveh. Jonah is all privy to this. The rest of the book makes that so clear. So what should Jonah have done? Let's just stop the camera right at that moment and ask yourself that question for a minute. What should Jonah have done? What could Jonah have done right at that moment? I think, in my imagination, here's what Jonah could have done. Let's all confess our sin to the Lord. Let me confess my sin to the Lord. And I will turn from it right here, right now. And let's go back to Joppa. Will you take me back to Joppa? You can keep the fare I've paid, but please take me back. I need to do what God has commanded me to do. You think God would have quieted the sea then? Maybe even sent like a really heavy wind <laughs> eastward? I suspect that's what could have happened. But what do you see there now? All right, the camera's back on. What did Jonah say? And what does that indicate about Jonah's heart even then? Pick me up, hurl me into the sea. Remember, Jonah doesn't know the future there, right? He doesn't know what's coming. He's responding to what he knows immediately. His heart was still rebelling against God's word and God's saving plan to the point where he would rather die than do God's will. Isn't that something? He would rather die. This is, this is an invitation for suicide right here, right? Kill me. That's what he said in chapter 4. Just kill me right now, God. I did not want to see this city saved. Just take my life. I would rather die than do God's will and see God save the Ninevites. Wow. That's, that's deep, isn't it? That's a deep rebellion in his heart. Just let that weigh on you. The story goes on. Jonah's assistants, again, are frustrated. They're like, wow, I don't like plan A. Let's try plan B. They rode. They rode hard to get back to dry land, but they couldn't. They could not, for the sea 
grew more and more tempestuous against them. Wow. Jonah's assistants then prayed. They called out, not to their gods this time. They called out to the Lord. And why? Because they had decided, okay, let's, let's throw Jonah in. Let's throw him in. So they said, O oh Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us the innocent blood. For you, O oh Lord, have done as it pleased you. Wow. Their prayer underscores even the message of Jonah. Did you see that? O oh Lord, Yahweh, there's the covenant name of God. You have done as it pleased you. That is another statement of salvation belongs to the Lord. He does all that He pleases. And I will say here, I believe that these assistants were converted at this point. Before they get to that point, the assistants then picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea. And the sea ceased from its raging. Where does that remind you of? All of a sudden, I'm thinking of Jesus, right? And a little bit, so I think there is some direction here. Jesus is lying in the bottom of the boat on the Sea of Galilee, isn't he? And he, he is not the rebellious servant of Yahweh, is he? He is the gloriously obedient servant of Yahweh. And so that he can wake up from his slumber in the storm, go up on the deck and say what? Peace be still. There, there is the true king of heaven. And this is the one to whom these frustrated, terrified mariners pray. This is an amazing surprise here. They were saved. James Boyce, in his commentary again, notices that these guys did not make a foxhole conversion. This is compelling. I love this. They didn't say, Yahweh, please spare us because we're about to throw this guy over. We know you do all that you please. We believe it now. And, and please then, if you will save us, we will serve you for the rest of our lives. Right? They didn't do a foxhole conversion, right? And then go off and take it all for granted. Notice the order of their actions. First they pray, God, please be merciful to us. Next, they hurl Jonah over. Then what? They feared the Lord. Exceeding. Do you imagine that? They hurl him over, and it's, I don't know how quickly, but must have been pretty quickly. Jonah's body sinks beneath the surface of the waves, and all of a sudden, as it does, what? Still. I imagine not a word dropped on that deck. They're just like, wow, what a God. Amazing, right? These guys feared. The Lord, Yahweh, exceedingly. And they offered a sacrifice to the Lord as they certainly had heard from the people of Israel. They, they had heard about these things, certainly in their seafaring travels, going to many towns. And they offered a sacrifice and they made vows. They said, Lord, we will serve you. You deserve it. That's, that's salvation. That is salvation. Fear for the judgment of God. Repentance. Sacrifice. Sacrifice. Seeking for atonement. And then commitment to live for the Lordship of the Creator. 
that's the magnificent climactic ending of chapter 1. Isn't that amazing? Who is doing all of this? Look at Jonah's own words. Who is doing all this? Yahweh, the God of heaven who made the sea on the dry land. That's who was doing all this. All of these things. This is the God who created heavens and the earth simply by speaking. This is the God of Psalm 29. Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders the Lord over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The Lord breaks the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon to skip like a calf and Syrian like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord flashes forth flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth and strips the forest bare. And in His temple all cry glory. The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord sits enthroned as king forever. May the Lord give strength to his people. May the Lord bless his people with peace. That's that God. This is the God of Job who exposed Job to the glories and power and majesty of his creation. This is the, this is the God of the Red Sea who took his people Israel and parted the sea and brought them through and then brought the sea back on their enemies. This is the God of the Jordan River who parted it and brought them into the land of promise and caused the walls of Jericho to fall down and, and all of the things that God amazingly, powerfully, almightily, and miraculously did that certainly these mariners knew. Psalm 89, 8 and 9, O Lord, God of hosts, who is mighty as You are, O Lord, with Your faithfulness all around You, You rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. You see, here's the point. This God will not let one of His children go and run headlong into rebellion forever. That's the point. He will wield His almighty creative power in heaven and on earth in land and sea in order to exercise His sovereign, saving, steadfast love and faithfulness. That's what He does. You see it right here. He will save His people from their sins. That's His name. Jesus. He will save sinful cities from their sins. He will save unsuspecting sailors from their sins, and even use the disobedience of His proud and bitter and rebellious servants to do so, though it's no excuse. He can still do it. Salvation belongs to the Lord. This is a convincing story, isn't it? As we come to a conclusion, 
Let me push it even closer to you. Do you have a loved one who is not yet saved that you have agonized in prayer over? Maybe it's a child, a parent, a friend. Have you felt hopeless in witnessing to them? In speaking truth? Have you often failed in your fleshly responses to them even in thinking, oh, I sure blew it now. You felt that way? Look what God can do. Behold it. Salvation belongs to the Lord. It doesn't matter how sinful a person is. It doesn't matter how idolatrous a person is. It doesn't matter how resistant even a person is. This story covers it all, doesn't, doesn't it? If God has purpose to save, He will save. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Take heart. Hope in God. Think of the disobedience of His servants. It's a very poignant point in this story. Like Jonah. Maybe you know of a brother or sister in Christ whom you love who seems to be walking or running the wrong way. Down. Down, right? Away from the Word of God. Away from the face of God and all of the desires that they have working in their life and being played out. And it breaks your heart. To watch, you see the devastation that is and could result, and it grieves you. But look what God can do. God will not let his children go, ever, ever, ever. He will wield wind and sea to bring them back. He will. He has done it. He will do it again. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And maybe you're like Jonah. Maybe you are Jonah. Turning away from the word of the Lord. Disobedient to the clear directives of God's word. Running from the face of God. Neglecting the great commission. For whatever reason you do. Fear. A sense of weakness. Maybe even like Jonah, pride. Because you don't want those wicked people out there to be saved. You'd rather they face the judgment of God. Repent of your running. God will not let you go. However painful His restoring process may be, He is sovereign and He loves you with an unwavering faithfulness. He will hurl a wind at you and stop you, and turn you around, and make you a faithful servant who will speak your, His word with boldness and love. Philippians 1.6, He who began a good work in you, what? Oh, He will complete it, even if there's storms and hurricanes and broken ship all along the way. 
He'll do it. John 10.28 My sheep are in my hand and in my Father's hand and I will never let them go. Right? Trust in your Savior. Turn from your running. Trust in your Savior. Because that's the ultimate direction that this whole story points. And Jesus said it Himself. There are many ways that Jonah points us to Christ. You see, He was the perfect servant of Yahweh whose delight was to do the will of Him who sent Him. Even though it meant great shame, He endured the cross, despised the shame. And like He said in the story of the woman at the well, His meat was to speak the words of Him who sent Him. You see, Christ is our righteousness. He is our atonement. His presence and love are within us so that we can be strengthened in order to be conformed into His image. You are crucified with Christ and He lives in you and desires to live His life through you. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And maybe you're here this morning and you are, you're like those sailors your whole life up to this point. You've been worshiping false gods. You're not a follower of Jesus Christ. Your sins are not forgiven, but you're beginning to realize your sinfulness before this holy creator of heaven and earth. And I would say to you, God has spoken. You need not doubt His presence. Look at creation all around you. There is no other viable explanation than that there is a creator who is King and Lord of all. And that Creator King has spoken powerfully through His Son. Yes, on the boat when Jesus calmed the sea, but all through His life as He lived to provide us with perfect righteousness, as He died to take our guilt and our punishment upon Himself and deal with it forever, satisfying God's wrath for sinners. And He rose from the dead to provide eternal spiritual life to all who trust in Him. Don't refuse Him who is speaking to you. He's the God of heaven. Like these guys here, pray, seek His face, turn from sin, trust in the sacrifice that Christ has already provided, and give yourself to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Let's stand together and pray. Our Father in heaven, may we be humbled at your word. May we turn from our sin. May we hope in you. May we hope in you as we grieve for those around us. May we be filled with the hope of the truth salvation belongs to you. We worship you because of this today. We delight in it. And we're humbled by it. Thank you for Jesus, the perfect servant, who is our substitute, our Savior. We pray in his name. Amen.